Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 62 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Paul O'Hara, an associate professor at Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio. Dr. O'Hara is a graduate of the University of Minnesota and Indiana University at Bloomington, and now teaches a number of different U.S. history courses at Xavier. I invited Paul onto the podcast after finding his book, Inventing the Pinkertons, or Spies, Sleuths, Mercenaries, and Thugs. This is the story of the origins of the Pinkerton Detective Agency, the most famous and most notorious detective agency in U.S. history. If you're a longtime listener of the podcast, then you know I usually focus primarily on World War II and the Cold War, so I was really excited to explore an amazing story from an earlier period of history that we have yet to discuss here. But first, I want to say a big thank you to everyone listening who is also supporting me on Patreon, including Cameron W. and Matthew S. Your monthly contributions there help me keep this podcast going week in and week out. As a way of thanking my patrons, I offer a lot of great freebies and promotions, including free and discounted books and products from the Spycraft 101 store. Patrons also get exclusive access to long-form articles of mine that aren't available anywhere else. If you haven't signed up for my Patreon yet, but you want to, just click the link in the show notes on whatever podcast platform you're listening to right now. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me about your book. It's absolutely my pleasure. I'm so happy to be here. Absolutely. Yeah, I know that we had a lot of back and forth to get this interview set up, and that's the case a lot of times for me, and it always pays off. So I'm glad that we're here, honestly, because this was a really fascinating book for me and a period of history that I did not know a whole lot about. I mean, I went over it in school, but I never made it you know, a real special focus of mine. So I'm glad that someone like you did, because I, I learned a lot, and it was, it was just riveting stuff, honestly. Well, thank uh, you. So what was it, Paul, that, that drove you to write this book about the Pinkertons in the first place? Well, I, I teach a lot of classes and the classes tend to focus on, you know, you start at the Civil War and you move through the Gilded Age you, you, and you, you leave that behind and you head into the, the 20th century. You get up through the Great Depression and, and World War II and just you cover a lot of material in lots of different ways. You move very quickly. And I just the more I taught it, the more I wanted to find something that connected everything together. Right. Because especially as you move into the Gilded Age, you do the West and then you, you, know, you do the South and Reconstruction, and then you head North and you talk about industrialization. And it, it never really connected together in ways that I really liked. But the, the more I examine, try to find ways to, to, to link it together, I just I found Pinkertons everywhere. Everywhere I looked, there they were. And it, it became a nice way to kind of tie everything together and loop things back while I'm teaching. And just the more I did that, the more fascinating it became. Like they were everywhere and their fingerprints are on everything. Why, why is this agency doing so much in so many places? Why are they so beloved by some, so hated by others? What makes them so ubiquitous? What makes them so common? All of those just the, those questions just kept coming up and I just I, I needed to know the answers to them. Hmm. That, that's actually a fascinating point. I hadn't considered it, but now that I look back, the book is kind of divided up not just by time period, but by geography as well. And, and you're right. I mean, they spread out 
everywhere and they were they were spreading influence and spreading power as well projecting power i guess you would say yeah. for their clients everywhere they went and it really it really was a, a wonderful way of showing how capitalism spread american industry spread and the, the physical manifestation of that power spread across the country as well it's really interesting stuff honestly Thank you. I appreciate that. And again, it was it, what fascinated me, right? So they're they're renowned for, on the one hand, being these sort of you know trench coated railroad guys, sort of out in the West. They're chasing down bandits, right? Sort of they're 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 folkloric heroes in the West, and they're in strikes in the East, right? They're 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 everywhere, and it's the same agency, often the same guys. And I needed to know why. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm certainly glad that you wrote the book. It was really good stuff. Of course, I shouldn't say of course, many people probably would not know this. I, I think I knew a little bit about it, but Alan Pinkerton, the founder, he wrote quite a bit about the agency himself. But as the founder, I think most people would probably understand implicitly he was not the most reliable narrator because he was so subjective. So what was it like for you having to research the Pinkerton agency when he wrote so much about it, but was probably not an objective writer to begin with. I mean, how did you kind of parse fact from fiction as you were getting ready to write this book? That was really hard. That was sort of the, one of the hardest hurdles uh, because almost everything we know about the agency comes directly from Alan Pinkerton, right? He, he, he writes prolifically or perhaps have, has ghosts written for him, right? So it's, it's tricky how much he's actually doing, um, but mm, just, okay. you know, book after book after book, tracing his exploits. And whether that's what he does during the war, his relationship with Lincoln, sort of the big name cases, sort of he, he, he generates all of this enormous amounts of material, which is clearly, clearly designed to foster his reputation and, and, and create a brand. It is, it is brand management in, in, its, in its earliest and, and maybe purest form, right? He's, he's creating a name for himself and a reputation for himself. So what, as a historian, what do you do with that, right? And, and so it's, so much of it came through him. And I wanted to, right, can I dig deeper? Can I find other things? Do I, I, I go to their files? I go to their papers? I go into the archives? I look at other readings? And ultimately, it just became unclear how to, how to actually find what the truth of who the Pinkertons were, what they're doing, why they're doing it. So much either comes through Pinkerton or from the agency or responses to the agency, responses to his writing. It just became nearly impossible for me to get at what I could consider to be sort of a, a, a capital T truth. And so ultimately, I just decided maybe that's not the point. Maybe maybe the point of this study, because maybe the point of the agency is not just what they do, but how people feel about what they do and, and the, sort of the, the stories that get bandied around and, and the reputation that gets built and the justifications that the agency uses for what they do and when they do it. So I just kind of embraced Alan as the narrator, right? Sort of embraced that he was telling his story the way that he wanted me to hear it, the way that he wanted others to hear it. And I was going to sort of read other people who had different views on who he was and just accept that there wasn't a single narrative and a single truth, but just a series of different narratives that really, I think, illuminated what were the, the major anxieties of this age, right? It wasn't just how does capitalism and law and order and 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 the railroad expand westward. But how do people feel about this? What, what, are, what are they afraid of? What do they fantasize about? And sort of embracing the almost literary aspects of the Pinkerton agency, which is why the, 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 
the book has the, the sort of the sub the titles that it does, right? The title and subtitle, right? It's sort of just embrace the kind of sensationalist literature that the Pinkertons themselves embraced. So I just I went with it. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I, I really agree with you there. It was it was a very interesting way to approach it. And one of the things that's so ironic about the agency and, and the book as well is, you know, it's called the detective agency, Pinkerton Detective Agency, which people think of in a way as a historian, right? Like your detective pieces together the past in a very real way. But at the same time, it's very clear that this agency was influencing current events so many times, you know, time and time again, they're influencing current events or, you know, shaping future events, you know, for their for their clients, these giant clients that they were representing. And it was you know, while they're called the Pinkerton Detective Agency. So just really drew me in, just as enthralling stuff, honestly. And they are, they're so, they're everywhere and their fingerprints on, on everything. But they also become this cipher through which everyone reads what's happening in, in the in the Gilded Age. And what's what's complicated, and and I, I think this shows up in the book, what's complicated is that there are, there's, there are the Pinkertons, sort of with a capital P, right? The agency. And then there's sort of Pinkertons that just becomes this broadly applied term to any kind of muscle exerted by uh, capital, right? Anytime em employers hire these sort of private guards, they get called Pinkertons, right? So a Pinkerton becomes a, an epithet to, to, to be thrown at someone. And they're both, right? So you have the, the Pinkertons and Pinkertonism and, and sort of this, this various ball of just what all of the, the various anxieties of the Gilded Age are, and it's all contained in the ways in which people talk about what this agency was. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting stuff, definitely. So we, we've kind of talked about them, you know, just like you mentioned a couple of times, they had their fingerprints and everything. I know that originally they were founded as the Northwest Police Agency, but since they were involved in so much stuff, is there any way that you could kind of sum up in like a sentence or two what the Pinkerton Detective Agency was or what their mission was, or was it just anything that it needed to be? I think it's everything that it needs to be. In other words, it, it goes through a, a process of evolution. Alan himself, he's, he's, he's first, he's a cooper, right? So he's, he's trained to build barrels and he sort of stumbles into detective work because he, he finds counterfeiters and he sort of, he, he, he tries to help and chime in and, and, and catch counterfeiters who are you know, using the same land he is. And he realizes it's a pretty good business. And so he's going he's gonna to provide policing. And that's important in the 1850s, right? Because there aren't really police forces, right? What, what few police forces exist are basically riot control. If you want crime solved, you've got you've to hire your own, right? So he's first and foremost sort of a private police agency for Chicago industrialists, for Chicago bankers. And then the railroad hires him. And then suddenly his jurisdiction widens, right? He's not just in Chicago. He can, he's, he's everywhere. He's in every state and he's investigating employees. He's investigating robberies. He's investigating embezzlement. And, and that's when he becomes sort of a national agency and he's uncovering these crimes, right? And that's when he starts to dabble into, into sort of detectives and the sort of mythology he ties into that emerging literary. It's why he writes all the books, right? He's sort of in this literary creation of what the romantic detective is. And then the war comes and then he's suddenly a spy and he's running these spy agencies and he's doing all this intelligence and counterintelligence. And then the railroads expand rapidly after the war and industry expands rapidly after the war. And suddenly steel agencies and steel magnets are, are hiring private armies and they're breaking strikes and they're investigating conspiracies of anarchists. And so as 
the Gilded Age shifts, the agency shifts to match it. And they're really, they're really there to provide whatever services industry needs. And if that's policing, if that's crime, if that's chasing down bandits, if that's investigating conspiracies, if that's protecting private property, if it's walking the picket lines and cracking some heads, whatever's demanded of them as the as the century goes on, they adapt to do it. Hmm. That's amazing stuff, honestly. I mean, the, the longevity really speaks to itself because as you clearly said, you went through multiple, you know, very different eras of American society, culture, history, and everything. And yet the organization was always there. Yeah. So because you mentioned Pinkertons were ubiquitous and kind of the name was associated with all these detectives, was there any other similar like nationwide private security organizations or was Pinkertons like, you know, in a, a, a level of its own, really? Was there anybody else out there that could compete at that level with Alan Pinkerton's agency? That's a great question. And really, the, the answer is no. In the 1850s, absolutely not. There are some other kind of tiny police agencies, right? Not, that Northwest Police Agency, which is really supposed to just provide policing in Chicago. There are lots of other companies that do that in the 1850s, right? Some some competition. But really, the, the genius, I guess one would say, of Alan Pinkerton is that he sees this bigger need and he sees this this this, this bigger possibility of creating not just moving, shifting from police to detectives, but making it that national detective agency, right? That's that's that key transformation. He puts his name in because he's he's earning this reputation through all these publications. So it's his agency, right? It's the Pinkertons, but it's that national. They are, they are Pinkertons and they are national and they are detectives. And all three of these are new concepts because he's tapped into a new market. And for a long time, he's doing it alone. He has really created an entire industry around what he does. Hmm. Amazing. Amazing. So because this agency could kind of just flex to meet any demand, yeah. was there was there anything like a typical, you know, Pinkerton detective? Like where did he find the people to meet all these demands? I mean, were they, yeah. you know, guys who were good at a lot of different things or was it just a bunch of, you know, thugs willing to do whatever they were told for money? Something in between? <laughs> Yeah, well, here's here's where we get into those sort of complicated overlapping truths when it comes to the Pinkertons. If you read Allen's work, what he says about his agency, he would say, yes, of course, there's a typical Pinkerton agent. It is a, a man of hor- high moral standing, educated, probably a bit of an actor, right? So that he, he values a certain 19th century aesthetic of guys who can who can take on a role and play the role and convince convince others that they are something other than what they are, right? They're basically con men, but for a moral purpose. He, he would say, absolutely, we, we hire upstanding, moral, middle-class men to, to, to fight off these dangers. Critics would say, no, that's clearly not the case. Look at, look at, the, look at who you hire, right? You, you, you hit the streets and you hire criminals to chase down criminals. You hire thugs to, to provide the muscle, that, that companies want. So there's that raging debate and no one's really sure exactly. They're high profile detectives. They're big names. Pinkerton loves talking about Kate Wern, right? Because she's a, she's a woman and he's, he's one of the first to hire a, a, a woman detective. She can infiltrate places that others can't. He loves Timothy Webster, who's a spy of his during the war. He loves James McParlane. He's the, the very model of, of the Pinkerton detective because he infiltrates the Molly Maguires. He has his favorites, but clearly elsewhere, 
there are there's the Pinkertons are just kind of bad men with guns and badges, right? There's also sort of Tom Horn, and Tom Horn's basically just a paid assassin in Wyoming. So they run the gamut of what what they might be, and people notice. So there's that disparity between who Pinkerton says his agents are and who people experience as Pinkerton agents. Hmm. I can imagine. So since you mentioned several of those, um, you know, all-star Pinkerton detectives, yeah. so to speak, can you talk a little bit about them? Because I've definitely heard the name Kate Warren a number of times. I know there's several books out there about yeah. her right now. I haven't read any of them. I haven't read any books about any of them, but I would love to know, were these people legitimate all-stars? Were these his true talent or were they, you know, a part yeah. of the of the mythos that he built? Well, both. They're, they absolutely are both. Kate Warren in particular is one of his first early acquisitions. She's, she's a, she is an all-star for this agency. Because one of the things, his early plan for, for detection in the 1850s, even up through the 1860s, he's convinced that criminals are, they're, they're morally failed, right? So they, they make bad choices and that sooner or later, they'll admit, they'll, they'll, they'll confess if you're just around to hear it. And so, especially embezzlers, right? He's, he's working for the railroad. He's working for the express companies. These are companies that ship money and they get embezzled all the time, right? It's largely the employees themselves who are stealing that money. So he just says, well, if we just, if we just put agents near them, right? Well, they'll, we'll send guys into, into the saloons where they drink and we'll buy them drinks and get them chatting. Kate Wern sort of cozies up to the, their wives and gets into their parlors and chats, right? She's, she infiltrates that domestic sphere, and that's incredibly useful. He gets he gets great information out of Kate Warren, and he gets information throughout the war from Kate Warren, right? She's able to move in and out of Richmond, move in and out of a lot of parlors, get a lot of information that no one else expects because no one expects someone who looks like Kate Warren to actually be a, a, a private detective, right? To be working intelligence. So she's, she's legit. Timothy Webster working throughout the, the war in Richmond. He's tougher because we, we know mostly, what we know mostly about him comes through Alan Pinkerton. And he's, he's deeply, clearly deeply affected by, by Timothy Webster because Timothy Webster gets caught during the war and he gets executed as a spy during the war. And this, this hurts Pinkerton immensely. He feels guilty about it, but he also lauds the, the detective work that, that Webster does. James McParlin, I think is the other one I mentioned. He's, he's famed. He infiltrates the Molly Maguires. He, he works in Idaho later in the, in the, in the century. He's the public face. If there's a, if there's a single public face that's not named Pinkerton for this agency, it's James McParlin, right? Cause he's that kind of moral upstanding gentleman, but actor that Pinkerton wants his agents to be. But you also get Tom Horn. You also get uh, Charlie Syringo. You also get sort of these other kind of cowboy detectives who are just shy of gunslingers, who are just shy of, of paid assassins. They don't fit the model as well. And so Pinkerton's, whether it's it's Alan or later his sons, they're never thrilled when someone like Charlie Syringo talks about his time as a Pinkerton agent, because that's not really the model that <laughs> they, they, it's not the brand that they want to put out there. Yeah, that that's really funny. He's I know there's a quote. I, it's not coming to me at the moment, but Charlie Syringo is the guy that they need, but not the guy that they want to bring out into the light. I would imagine right. that's exactly right. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I'm precise. sure they called him on many. They called on his particular skill set many times. He didn't wind up in the books too much. No, not at all. And it's only successes, right? So they never. They, they, there's a debacle when they try to catch Jesse James, right? 
that never gets written about, right? It's only the successful cases. And they don't mm-hmm. talk much about the West because Western politics are complicated. But so, yeah, Charlie Syringo disappears from the books. And Charlie Syringo, when he disappears from Pinkerton's books, writes his own book. And it is it is less kind to, to, how, <laughs> to how the Pinkerton agency functions. And he says, in essence, right, listen, I know. I've been in the bunks with these guys, right? I know who they hire. And these are bad dudes, right? These are, these are really some dangerous guys that they hire and arm and put out on the streets. Just wow. so you know, right, who these guys are, you need to know how this, how this agency functions, right? And that's, that's what Charlie Seringo is saying in the, in the 1890s. It's also what Dashiell Hammett, who was a Pinkerton agent, right, before he became a, a novelist, right? He says much the same. You know, my hmm. time as a Pinkerton, I saw some things and worked with some people who were who were of questionable character. Right. So Dashiell Hammett will say much the same. Wow. Wow. That's interesting. I wasn't aware of that somehow. So I want to go back a moment. You, you mentioned that briefly that Alan Pinkerton was a cooper, a, a barrel maker to begin with. And he somehow got involved in, you know, arresting some counterfeiters that were using the same land as him. I mean, how does a, a barrel maker go from making barrels to, you know, leading an iconic national level detective agency. Exactly. Like what was the skills that he called on, you know, to do all of that? Again, that's a great question. Uh, And the biography of Alan Pinkerton, we always get from Alan Pinkerton or from his sons. And it always shifts. It it changes over time. So it's really hard to know. I know some other authors have tried to track down exactly who that, that real Alan Pinkerton is. It's tough, right? Because he, he creates his own mythology and creates his own legend. But the story he tells that's pretty accurate. He grows up in, in, in Glasgow. He's from Scotland. He's a cooper that puts him sort of, you know, working class. He's an artisan, but it's one of the lower artisans in a time in which industrialization is undermining that. And he's a chartist, which is a fascinating element of him, right? So the chartists are sort of working class, radical politicians, right, who are, who are demanding political change in England, right? So they're demanding the vote. They're demanding more representation in parliament, right? There's kind of working class radicals, and he's one of them. And as part of his Chartist politics in the 18, late 1840s, before England really cracks down on the Chartists, he flees. He, he, he leaves Scotland. He heads to, to, to the U.S. He moves to Chicago. He's going to establish himself as a cooper. He's going to build barrels, that involves sort of heading out into the, the the wilderness and wilds to find just the right kind of wood that he can he can bend and shape, and that happens to be where counterfeiters are hiding, right? So if he stumbles across them, he goes to find the sheriff to tell him about it. The sheriff says, "If you'll help me, I'll pay you." He says, "That sounds like that sounds like a pretty good deal." He helps he helps capture the first counterfeiters. He gets paid. He gets fame. He gets written about in the in the newspaper. The, the local sheriff, the post office, other banks come to him and say, if you, if you want more work, we have it for you. And he says, like, that's, that's when the light goes off for him, right? I can, I can do this. This is a skill set I have. I can find these guys. I can track them down. I have the fortitude and, and the moral center to do it. And that's, that's how his agency begins, right? He, he sort of shifts from Cooper to detective providing some law and order and semblance of, of law in Chicago when there seems no other option. Hmm. That's amazing. So do you, was he legitimately a, a talented detective in that sense? I mean, or was he, he wasn't just a strap hanger with the sheriff in this particular case, as far as you know, I mean, did he, he brought something to the table? Again, so hard to know. Cause we hear from him. Right. right. I mean, I think so. He, he's, he certainly seems to be pretty talented. He seems to have, I think his best talent 
is he was tenacious. He hardly ever gave up, right? If he's if he was tracking someone, he was he was going to find them. He was dedicated and he he worked very very hard to track people down. So I think I think that tenacity proved to be his his best attribute. Okay. That, yeah, that's important no question. That and his ability to self-promote, right? So to take <laughs> take those early successes and parlay them into a reputation, a reputation enough that he sort of takes his agency and renames it after himself so that so that people know exactly what they're getting. So he's successful enough to create a reputation and then good enough at maintaining that reputation to get more employment. And I think that that feeds the the loop for him. That leads to, to a lot of fame, a lot of fortune, and he becomes tremendously successful. Hmm. Okay. All right. That, that makes sense. Was it... Was he the right man in the right place at the right time to build this agency or or what? I, I just I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around him building something so totally brand new from this kind of inauspicious beginning. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's exactly it. I think he's in the right place at the right time. He makes the right connections. You know, if you're if you're going to provide a need for the railroads. In the 1850s, Chicago is exactly the right place to be, right? So this is this is where they're they're booming. This is where they're starting. They're heading out west into the, these sort of wide open spaces, relatively lawless spaces. They're desperate. He's there. I think it's sort of there's a there's kind of a marriage of convenience there. I think he does have talent. He's very good at this, and so I think it is sort of his right place, right time. And then that skill set to not only be a pretty good detective. And to hire pretty good detectives, right? He he's willing to hire Kate Warren, and no one else is, is, is even considers that, right? So he makes very good hires, and he's really good. What I think is his his real gift in terms of sort of industrial development is brand management. That what he creates is not just an agency that serves a need, but he creates the perception of the need. Right. That that railroads and banks and express agencies worry about the kinds of things that he can solve. So he creates the, the, the need, provides the, uh, that need, provides successful return. Right. Because he'll catch those criminals. He'll catch the embezzlers. He'll, he'll 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 catch the bad guys. And so. I think that's just that that begins to feed in on itself. He's definitely at the right place, the right time, makes the right connections. He meets not only Chicago businessmen, Chicago railroad men, but you know, George McClellan, who's working in the Baltimore and Ohio line, right? And so his knowing knowing McClellan, working with the railroads, as guys like McClellan move from the railroads to the Union Army, right? There he is, ready to sort of take advantage of the opportunities in the 1850s with railroads, 60s during the war, and the 70s on. Well, amazing stuff, honestly. Really is. So you, you mentioned like the, the brand management and everything, but clearly, I, I don't know if this all came to light many years later, but clearly the brand had some problems because they were constantly involved in violence. And, and yes. as you said, he had the guys that were essentially hired thugs. So how did he protect the brand over all of these many years? How did he keep gaining clients if they had a reputation for violence and killing innocents and, and you know, all of the other things that you describe in the book that were actually quite legitimately harmful to the interests of some of their clients? It's a tough balance for him. It really is. Not the least of which is he's at the right place at the right time to become, in essence, McClellan's spy master during the during the war, right? He's he's the head of intelligence and counterintelligence for George McClellan or for the Army of the Potomac. But he's not very good at it. And and sort of his 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 ability to collect field intelligence is pretty lousy. People notice it, he gets criticized. So his his 
His reputation coming out of the war isn't particularly good. He's already earned some critics. This is why he has to take on other work. It's why he's desperate to catch Jesse James. But the harder he tries to catch Jesse James, the worse his reputation becomes. Jesse James is the great failure, right? If, if his reputation is based upon, I always get my man, right? He doesn't. He doesn't catch Jesse James. The only thing he's, he's able to do is he, he kills uh, Jesse's young cousin and, and blows his mother's arm off in, a, in a, this attempt to capture the James brothers. So, yeah, very, very early, he loses some control over, over this reputation. Especially, and when I'm talking about James as well, is that Jesse James then becomes sort of the Southern rebel outlaw that definitely feeds the lost cause and Pinkerton falls into that. He wants to control it, but can't control it. And that's that's a, a, a central paradox for Pinkerton and it drives him nuts. Absolutely, drives the entire agency nuts. One of the things that amazed me when I went into the National Archives, went into the Pinkerton files, I read these company files and I, I wanted to find, I was hoping to find all kinds of sort of amazing details, right? When I was still trying to capture that capital T truth. And the Pinkerton files in the National Archives just contain file after file after file of newspaper clippings and, and, and press releases, right? There's basically just the, clearly an obsession with what are people saying about us? What, what? What, what kind of stories are they telling about us? How do they think about us? They were very, very cognizant of just how complicated this reputation was. Hmm. I think is, is, the, is the long answer to your question. The short answer is there are two ways to look at the Pinkertons, right? Some people love them. Some people hate them. For some, they are, they are protectors of law and order. For others, they are, they are the gun thugs of capital. Ultimately, it's, it's the industrialists, right? The people with money who feel pretty good about the Pinkertons, who like them. They're the ones who hire him. And if sort of the lower classes don't much care who the Pinkertons are and what they do, that doesn't really cut into Pinkerton's business. Hmm. Yeah, they're not the customer anyway, right? Right. They're not going to hire him anyway. It's exactly right. <laughs> wow. Fascinating stuff. So since you mentioned the war and becoming the spy master, I mean, that's that's what this whole podcast is about, obviously, is talking right. about espionage and intelligence. So I know that, you know, any... any search of anything related to civil war intelligence and all that, one of the first things that comes up is this attempt on the life of Abraham Lincoln. So can you talk about that a little bit? Because it sounds like it's very hard once again to get to the truth of what really happened there. Yeah, this one's really hard. And this is this is the one that sort of nearly broke me when I was trying to find sort of, you know, whether or not this is true. I just had to accept that I don't know. I think we still don't know. So the details of this are often referred to as the Baltimore plot, right? That, that Lincoln after his election is, and, and he's not particularly popular and secession has already happened. So he's, he's taking this big, long train journey, right? He's sort of stopping from city to city, having holding rallies, talking with politicians, right? Building the support system. Lincoln's on this long, slow path to get from Springfield, Illinois to Washington, D.C. And in the final stages of this, this train journey, Pinkerton and others start to hear rumors, right, that maybe there's some discontentment, especially in Baltimore, especially in Maryland. It's a border state. They, they hadn't seceded yet, but maybe they would. No one's sure. It's a slave state. How do they feel about, about the Republicans? How do they feel about Lincoln? There's a rumor, and that rumor persists that there's a conspiracy afoot. Some of the leading citizens of Baltimore, including the police chief, are going to be involved in an assassination attempt. When Lincoln arrives, 
at the train station in Baltimore. There's going to be a fracas. There's going to be sort of the, the, a fight will break out on the platform. Everyone's attention will be diverted. And that's the moment which, in which someone will kill Lincoln. Pinkerton's convinced of it. Some others are convinced of it too, right? But, but Pinkerton's absolutely convinced. He sends what he's always done. He sends agents into Baltimore. They go to bars. They drink. They, right, they buy drinks for everyone else. They talk. They listen. They, they hear the same rumors. So Pinkerton takes this. He goes to Lincoln in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and says, I, I, I keep hearing this. I think it'd be best if you don't go through Baltimore. Lincoln's loath to buy it. He's, he's a little embarrassed by it. But ultimately, Pinkerton's able to convince Lincoln that this threat is real, or real enough to take seriously. And so a new plot is hatched when Lincoln leaves the, the, the dinner in Harrisburg, he's supposed to spend the night in Harrisburg and then go the next day into Baltimore. Instead, he sneaks out, gets on a train in the middle of the night, and that train runs, right, doesn't stop until it gets to Baltimore. They exchange in the middle of the night in Baltimore, and he sneaks into Washington, D.C. in the middle of the night, unaccompanied, right, unseen, and avoids Baltimore altogether, thus avoiding the assassination plot. However, almost immediately, Lincoln is mocked for this. Right? Because it seems it seems cowardly, it seems overly cautious, it seems embarrassing. Was he in disguise? Was he sort of you know wearing a giant cloak, which comes dangerously close to, to wearing a dress, right? Like it, so what what exactly did Lincoln do? What sort of responsibility was this ever really real? These are immediate questions. And for the most part, Lincoln Lincoln's embarrassed by this. And, and it kind of goes away for a long time. Pinkerton moves into his, his wartime work. He's still close with McClellan. And, and no one takes it seriously again until Lincoln is assassinated in 65. And that, and that changes everything, right? Because once Lincoln is assassinated, everyone's willing to consider, well, maybe earlier assassination plots might have more to them than we earlier thought. And so... It's so tough. Did it exist? We just don't know. How do you how do you prove the existence of a plot that never happened, whose conspirators were never arrested, never questioned, and the details were, were never clear? So hard to know. But Pinkerton does make it the very staple, the very foundation of what his what his later reputation will be. It's his very first book. Is my role? He says in defending the president. In, in sneaking him into Washington and saving his life. It is it is the most important foundation of who Pinkerton says he is. Hmm. Amazing stuff. Yeah. And was, I mean, did people take that at, at face value after 1865? I mean, I mean, did it, did it work for Pinkerton at least in the way that yeah. he wanted it to? Absolutely. It worked for him absolutely the way that it wanted to. Did everyone buy it? No. And there are going to be critics through the end of the end of the century who will still question whether or not this plot was ever really true and whether Pinkerton's role was meaningful at all. But Lincoln's so beloved and Pinkerton is able to, to scrounge up a photo, right? One photo. They happen to Lincoln and Pinkerton happen to share a space in Antietam, briefly, Pinkerton gets his picture taken with with Lincoln. He's able to, so he has this picture of the two of them together. That's always a key part of the promotional literature. So Lincoln's so loved, Lincoln is so missed that Pinkerton just kind of just basks in the in the in sort of the shared sunlight of of the Lincoln aura, and it works tremendously, tremendously importantly for him. It is a huge success. It makes his reputation. 
Yeah, that, that's incredible. And, you know, I, I feel like as a kind of a layman on this subject that that reputation is still there because a quick Google search for Pinkerton yeah. pulls up Lincoln in yeah. the first three seconds. I mean, that, that photo with Lincoln. Yes. So you can be forgiven for thinking he was Lincoln's right hand man. Yeah. You know, just a quick search on. Absolutely. So, I mean, the man knew what he was doing. There's no question about it. You know, considering that sort of brand management wasn't really a thing and that kind of sort of that, that kind of, of, of careful massaging of message wasn't a thing yet. He's so good at it. And they have memos, right? So they know what they're doing. Um, both him and, and later his sons, right? They say, we're never sending out any kind of press release where we don't include this picture. Uh, and we're hmm. never opening an office where we don't put this picture, right? People have to see the picture of Pinkerton and Lincoln together, right? We always have to link those two together because that's that's our bread and butter. That's our that's our reputation. That's not what we do, right? What we do is we're, we're, we're private detectives for industry. But what we want people to think of when they think Pinkerton is Lincoln. That's their business model. Yeah, it's that, that really is such a great point. And, you know, one of the things that I was I kept thinking of over and over again while I was reading through this is I would really love to compare this as someone who, who doesn't really know a whole lot about either subject. But I would love to compare Pinkerton's ideas with things like the the late 90s dot com startups, for example, you know, yeah, brand yeah. new territory spreading across the country. Let's just, you know, kind of I hate to make it sound so crude, but just kind of throw something at the wall and see what sticks, yeah. you know, just do whatever we can. And some of it's going to work and some of it's not. I mean, I just feel like there's tremendous parallels there to be explored. There absolutely are. I, I think I think it is it is in some ways very much about uh, that kind of of startup where you create a need, then you you perpetuate that need and everything you you say both confirms why you need to hire me and why I'm so good at what I do that you should hire me. Yeah, he is doing exactly that kind of startup. I think right. as I as I as I finish the book, because the Pinkertons don't don't go away, right? So they rise and fall in popularity and they rise and fall in, in public esteem, but they're still around, right? They they stay through the 20th century. They still exist now, right? It's still a company. And and they float and change with the times. And sometimes they get in essence out Pinkerton with their ability to, to craft that narrative. And, and one of them is, is William Burns, who's, who creates his own detective agency, the William Burns Detective Agency. It's an international. He, he one-ups them on the name. It's the, the William J. Burns International Detective Agency. Oh, wow. And he creates, right, he, he ties has closer ties to the government. He crafts this, this even bigger, better narrative. And he's the one the government turns to when they want to create the FBI. And so, but but the FBI, especially the FBI under Hoover in the 30s, borrow from Pinkerton's playbook, right? This is what Hoover does, right? Create this imagery of we only hire young, educated, moral young men. We are trained professionals. We are scientific in our approach and we carefully control the narrative. We carefully control the storylines, right? Hoover wasn't just interested in tracking down bandits and outlaws and, and, and bank robbers, he was also, also really concerned with how are the movies portraying us, right? How, how, what, what sort of reputation do we have? Hoover in the 30s and 40s basically takes the Pinkerton playbook to creating his business. So it is, it, there is a certain model to how one creates a startup brand, especially a startup brand in private law enforcement. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, that's amazing stuff, honestly. And it's so I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I actually I hate to get kind of meta with this stuff, but I'm, I'm talking to an FBI historian right now for a future interview yeah. in the next few weeks and all about the very early days, the earliest days of the FBI. So I'm definitely going to have to ask him what he thinks about Pinkerton's influence on the FBI 
you know, right when it right. was forming. That, that's right. going to be a really interesting line of inquiry, I think. Especially because Hoover was also so very careful in making sure that you know, Pinkerton has himself and his sons and maybe James McParland and maybe Kate Warren, right? But but don't look any don't look any deeper, right? There shouldn't be other yeah. names. Right, uh, right. Hoover's also the same way, right? So there, there can't be celebrity FBI agents, right? No one, mm-hmm. no one can rise above him, right? So he has to be the, the the public face. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly the 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 model that that Pinkerton creates. Hmm. And later in the 20th century, right, we kind of we kind of invent a term for this, right, of copaganda, right? So the the, the ways in which TV shows and movies, Dragnet in particular, right, so the LAPD borrow heavily from the same playbook, use popular media use movies, use TV shows to create an ideal of what law enforcement is that may or may not match what law enforcement actually is. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Agree totally. Before we go on, I want to let you all know about a new educational tool you're not going to want to miss. It's the Gray Man Briefing Classified. By now, I think I know my listeners pretty well, and take it from me, this briefing is exactly the news and educational reference source that you've been looking for. You'll get breaking news updates from all over the world on topics including planned protests and riots, low-intensity conflicts, natural disaster alerts, cyber attacks, supply chain disruptions, and more. You'll also get access to articles that help you build your own skills, including urban survival, home security, counter-surveillance, escape and evasion techniques, and more. And this is much more than just a newsletter in your inbox. Joining the Gray Man Briefing Classified also includes invitation-only channels on the Telegram and Signal apps for convenient real-time updates. The newsletter subscription is normally $5 per month, but if you use the code GBCSPYCRAFT, you can save 20% each month for the life of your subscription. I'm already a member myself and have been reading and learning a lot since I first subscribed. Look it up yourself at graymanbriefing.com. That's gray with an A, graymanbriefing.com. And use the discount code GBCSPYCRAFT to save 20% right from the start. So, Paul, you mentioned that he became the head of intelligence and counterintelligence, but he wasn't especially good at that. So what was it that kind of separated that from the previous work that he did and his ability to do it? Well, he's sort of self-proclaimed as, as the head. So he will, he will, <laughs> he sort of calls himself the, the, the head of the U S secret service, right? Which isn't, isn't really a term in the 1860s, not yet. Right. So the secret service doesn't exist yet. He sort of just fancies himself and promotes himself as, as the head of, of this agency. And it's always, it's always a central, central contradiction with, with Alan Pinkerton, because you were just talking about sort of, you know, the, the, the gray man, right? Sort of this, this basic element of espionage, right? Of don't get noticed, right? Sort of the, the key to, to being successful as a spy is to not have people notice you. And Pinkerton desperately wanted to be noticed. He always wanted to be noticed. He wanted that notoriety. He wanted that fame. That's always a problem when, you're, when your job is, is, is espionage and intelligence. So even during the war, right, he wants that fame, desperately wants that fame. So what he does during the war is he does the same thing he was doing before the war, which is send agents, right, hire agents and send them into Richmond, send them into the bars, send them into clubs, have them buy drinks, have them chat, have them listen. And, and let's, let's hear what, what we get back. And it's what he had done for the Baltimore plot. It's how we had tracked down embezzlers. It's his MO, right? Just, you, you, you send in gentlemen to throw some cash around and, and, and find out what you hear. The problem being, of course, it's not a great way to get field intelligence during a war. He doesn't actually see what the, the def- nor his de- agents, see what the actual defenses of Richmond are. He doesn't see what the, the numbers are. He doesn't know what Lee's actually doing. He doesn't know where Lee actually is. 
what he hears are rumors. And those rumors are almost always inflated. The numbers are always larger. Turns out the guys drinking in Richmond brag and, and make stuff up and, and have misinformation themselves. So the, the intelligence coming out of Richmond through Warren, through Webster, through others, to Pinkerton, to McClelland are terrible, right? So the, the, the actual intelligence, the field intelligence is, is, is terrible. He, he has no idea what's going on. He doesn't know the numbers. He doesn't know troop movements. He knows very, very little. It's a mess. What he's very good at, it turns out, is counterintelligence, that he's able to find spies in Washington. Very famously, Rose O'Neill Greenhow, but he finds other spies in Washington as well. And so he's able to diminish his failures by trumpeting his, his, his successes. He's terrible at intelligence. He's pretty good at counterintelligence. And he's very, very good at making himself seem good at both. <laughs> Amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. So... After the war ends, I mean, everyone knows or everyone should know listening to the podcast, you know, it ends with a, a union victory. So his side essentially won. Yes. You know, despite his, you know, relative lack of of critical assistance there. But at that point, I guess the agency has to pivot again. Actually, that kind of begs the question. Was he keeping up all of the same stuff as well? Was he keeping up railroad security and, and everything else at the same time as he was providing these, you know, intelligence assets to the union? Absolutely. Yeah. He kept, he kept his agency going. He kept all those railroad connections. He, he kept all of, all of those, those ties. So he still has all of them. He's also, he's dedicated to the union cause. He's a, he's a dedicated abolitionist, which, you know, also makes him a, a complex guy. But more than anything else, he was, he was dedicated. He had personal loyalty to George McClellan, you know, from the Baltimore and Ohio days through the early parts of the war. So when McClellan gets fired for the last time, Pinkerton's had it, right? He, sort of, he, he takes his files and he goes home, right? He says, I'm done. And he sort of goes back into, into private business. He's made a ton of money during the war. He'll continue to make money providing railroad security throughout the war. But by by 63, he's done because McClellan is done. Hmm. Okay, so then is it just back to railroad security once the war ends? Because, I mean, there's a ton of like reconstruction in the South and just, I mean, a lot is going on. Like the landscape has changed in a big way since, you know, the war began, yes. right? Since 1861. That's right. Especially the, the Pacific Railways Act of, of 62 opens up all of this new railroad land for transcontinental railroads. There's going to be other railroads being built. He's not directly tied to reconstruction politics. He does very little work in the South. That's mostly the, the, the what little work gets done in the South in terms of protection comes from the army. This one is sort of one of the failures of reconstruction is when the army stops providing that protection. But his first real movement back into railroad work, he continues it throughout the war, right? But he's really dedicated to protecting railroads and protecting express companies shipping money through Missouri, right? These new railroads going across Iowa, across Missouri. He wants to protect them. He wants to keep them safe. And perhaps most importantly, given the chaos of the war, given the chaos of the guerrilla warfare, especially the guerrilla warfare in Missouri, given the number of bounty jumpers, right, who had who sort of, you know, accepted money from the army and then disappeared, right? So all these new outlaws everywhere, the real danger to the railroads by the mid-1860s, late-1860s, are no longer employees who embezzle money. It's bandits who will stop the train and rob it. And so suddenly there's that new need, and Pinkerton's right there to fill that need. He's going to track down bandits. He will track down train robbers. He does that first in Indiana with the Reno brothers. He'll do it in Missouri. He'll do it in Tennessee. And this is how he gets involved with Jesse James. 
but he can't catch Jesse James. Right, that's the, the the great paradox of Pinkerton. So he's found a new business, in essence. Right, he's adapted. He's found a new need. He's filling that need. Just isn't tremendously successful at it. Hmm. That's that's kind of a surprise because it seems like he sort of struck gold just about everywhere he went. At least in terms of of monetary financial success, if not you know true, what's the word? I'm capability. I guess I would say. Well, I think I think the Jesse James case is a learning curve for him because he originally goes into trying to capture Jesse and Frank James and the younger brothers, right? Because it's not really just Jesse yet. That comes later. That's part of the mythology. He's going to go into it the same way he's gone into everything else. How do we catch embezzlers? How do we catch spies in Washington, right? How do we gather intelligence in Richmond? Let's send gentlemen in with lots of money and throw that money around, right? Let's we'll, we'll send in agents and they'll go to the bar and they'll buy drinks and they'll ask. And so he does that in Missouri, right? He's, he sends agents into Missouri, guys who are clearly not from Missouri, who come into town, start throwing money around and say, hey, tell me what you know about Jesse James. And that immediately, right, sends up all kinds of red flags because Missourians who don't like the railroad, who are having their farms taken by the railroad, have sympathy for Jesse James, right? Jesse James is emerging as a kind of Robin Hood figure, right? The, his enemies are the same as these people's enemies. So mm-hmm. when Pinkerton agents arrive and start throwing money around and asking about James, immediately Jesse James finds out. And so the first agents who get sent into Missouri get found out immediately. They get they get dragged out of these bars and shot in the street, right? And so he, he sends agents in and the agents die. And the more agents he sends in, the more agents die. So wow. it's... He's got, he's got to change his business model. He had been successful with a particular kind of security, with a particular kind of, of, of detection, and it just doesn't work in Missouri in the 1860s. Hmm. So at, the, at that point, does it become like a, a personal vendetta or an obsession with him? Or was it just like he kind of took a loss on that one and had to move on? A little bit of both. It becomes deeply, deeply personal. He vows, right? He is going to He's going to chase down. He will, he will spend whatever he has to. They've, they've spilled Pinkerton blood and they will pay, right? He, sort of, he writes letter after letter, right, to his agents in Missouri saying, this, this is personal now. Find them, get them, do whatever you have to do. And yet, at some point, right, they continue to fail. And, and they continue to, far from successfully track down Jesse James, they actually foster sympathy for James, right? Sort of fewer and fewer Missourians want anything to do with Pinkerton. And Fewer and fewer Missourians want anything to do with the railroad because the railroad is connected to Pinkerton. And ultimately, Missouri officials have had it, right? Like, we actually, we prefer James and, and, and booming railroads than to have this kind of animosity toward railroads, right? You're bad for business. And so Pinkerton kind of has to, he doesn't like it, but he has to kind of accept, accept the loss mm. and, and walk away from Jesse James. It's one of the reasons why it never shows up in any of his books. He will not talk about or write about Jesse James because it's... It's bitter for him. Wow. Wow. That's amazing stuff. And so just remind me again, what happened to Jesse and the gang in the end? Were they eventually caught by someone else? No, it's a complicated history. So there's the government, the government by which I mean sort of the the governor of Missouri sort of is lukewarm about what's going to happen. But as as time to go on and the railroad is bringing in money. So sort of the government starts to shift and suddenly there's, there's a, there's money on James's head. The gang has to go further and farther afield to, to find places that they can successfully rob. And so their great plan is they're going to ride across several States to pick a new bank. They're going to go all the way to Northfield, Minnesota and try to rob a bank there. 
because um, all the it's it's big railroad money, it's it's wheat farm money, right? It's 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 going to be full of, of of all kinds of cash. They want to go up there. But Northfield, Minnesota is a hell of a long ways away from Missouri, right? And so they 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 get caught in town. There's a posse chasing them. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to hide. Much of the gang gets caught. Jesse and Frank do not. They escape, but just barely. And that that debacle that is the Northfield raid pretty much ends the gang. Both both the James brothers have to go into hiding for a long period. Their support networks have disappeared. This this idea that sort of people in Missouri will help them and hide them pretty much disappears. So for a long time, Jesse just goes underground. He eventually kind of rebuilds a new gang with new kids, right? Not people he he knew from the war, but sort of new folk. And it's not long until one of those new guys in his new gang, this is Robert Ford, knows that the governor's has the governor's offered money for the death of Jesse James. And so Robert Ford shoots Jesse in the back in, in Jesse James's house to claim the reward money. Hmm. It's an ignominious end for the, it for is, the guy. It is. And again, uh, that's sort of the, uh, the, the story of Jesse James. But of course, the folklore, as with any good folkloric story, is that, you know, maybe Jesse survived, right? Maybe Jesse runs away, right? So all, all good villains, all good folklore heroes live on. But yeah, yeah. Jesse James, Jesse James's story ends not the way one would expect. Yep. Yep. That's a American tragedy there, certainly. But complicated guy. Yes. So indeed. obviously there's, there's a lot going on out West, but eventually a big part of your book covers the... Pinkerton's interactions, I shouldn't say interactions, clashes with labor yeah. with, during the labor strike. So they become strike breakers. And that was some stuff that I was not nearly as aware of as I, I probably should have been. So can you talk about how they pivoted once again towards strike breaking? Again, I think it's the sort of uh, finding a need and filling that need as it developed. So even early within within the the, the Pinkerton agency in the 1850s, Allen creates two different companies under the same umbrella. So there, there's the Pinkerton detectives, right? And they're hired to root out crime, right? To catch criminals, to, to catch bank robbers, to provide intelligence, right? So these are, this is the A-team, right? So this is, this is who all of the reputation is, is built around. But they also create this other company that they don't really like talking about as much, and it's called the Protective Patrol. And the Protective Patrol are just armed guards, right? They're not detectives. They don't have that same kind of savoir-faire. They don't have the same kind of reputation. They're not romantic. They're just, they're just armed guards. But it's pretty profitable, and it helps to pay the bills, right? So they, they provide security in Chicago. And then you get into the late 1870s, 1880s. Allen is aging. He's getting very old. He's basically sort of moving out of the of the the business. His sons are taking over, and his sons see a new market, especially his son Robert, who comes to Allen and says, in essence, this is a huge new possibility, right? These these big companies, these big steel companies, these big railroad companies will hire as many guards as we can provide them. This is a business we have to be in. This is a business we have to expand. And Alan's not terribly comfortable with it, but Robert gives him an ultimatum, right? We either do this or or I'll leave and do it myself, right? And so that shift really happens not only as industry grows, as these firms become bigger, as, as their territory becomes bigger, their, their plants become bigger, but also because of a generational shift. The sons take over. And the sons, they're not Coopers who grew up in Glasgow, you know, who were Chartists fleeing the crown. We're not abolitionists discovering 
criminals in the, in the weeds in Chicago and going to war, they've grown up affluent. They've grown up successful. They've grown up amongst the Chicago elite. And they see a business possibility of providing limitless armed guards to industrial concerns. And that's where the Pinkertons, they're still out West. They're still chasing outlaws. They're still settling labor disputes and, and land disputes. But ultimately, from 1880 through the 1890s, the Pinkertons are best known, most famous, most notorious as the armed guards who show up anytime there's a strike. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I, I thought of them as to begin with, honestly, once again, like I said, as a sort of a layman. Right. But why was there was there an, an epidemic of, of strikes taking place at this time? Or was that already going on and the Pinkertons just moved into a new new realm? No, there's a wave. There's absolutely a wave. And part of that is is sort of the, the, the meta history of American economics, the boom that is industrial production during the war, and that continues after, the, uh, after 1865. There's rapid expansion of railroads. So there's, there's big new industrial concerns, big new industries. And then in 1873, the economy collapses. So the, we enter into a long, hard, bitter depression, runs from you know, 1873 through the, the end of that decade. And what that allows is for these big railroads, these big companies to consolidate further, to cut wages, to de-skill, and to, and, to, and to break what few unions existed. And so the power of, of these big companies is expanding rapidly, and workers fight back by forming new unions to try and force recognition by doing you know, walkouts and strikes, and these strikes almost always end in some kind of confrontation and violence. So starting in 1877, there's a big nationwide general strike in 1877. Starts in the Baltimore and Ohio and quickly becomes a, a much larger strike. And then repeatedly from 77 through the early 90s, there are so, so many strikes. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a violent age. There are lots of strikes. There are lots of conflicts. And anytime there's a strike and anytime there's violence in the strike, look closely and the Pinkertons are there. Are these guys coming out like in the in the dozens or in the hundreds? I mean, like how big of a, yeah. of a confrontation are we talking about here? They're coming in in force. Yeah, they are coming in in pretty good size. And this is part of the, the Pinkerton model that they have detectives, they hire detectives. They're very careful about hiring detectives and they keep those detectives on staff. For the protective patrol, they don't keep those guys around. Whenever there's a need, they kind of hit the streets of Chicago, they hit the streets of New York and round up anyone who's willing to carry a gun for some money. So they round them up very quickly, but they do. They arrive in force. They come in, in, in very big numbers. It is very much about creating that kind of, of show of force. Boy, if, if you're rounding up guys on the streets of Chicago, like who wants to crack some skulls for money? I, ca I can't imagine the kind of you know, monsters that you're bringing to these strikes, you know, at a time, it must've been some real, real characters to put and it that, lightly. And that was always the criticism. Yeah. The criticism of just, just who these Pinkertons were. And that's the, what Charlie Seringo points out when he says like, uh, yeah, I bunked with these guys. I know, I know who they are. And they were some, they were some bad dudes. So yeah, mm -hmm. they are, they are basically, they're hitting the streets to, to round up who they can. Paul, I got to ask you about this, the battle of Homestead that you cover in the book. Right. I, I truly had never heard of anything like that until until I read it there. So can you talk about what happened there a little bit? So there's this long process, right? As we talked about earlier, about sort of consolidation and, and lowered wages and, and monopoly. No one's better at this than Carnegie, right? Carnegie has built this sort of the steel empire. He's consolidated all the rail lines, all the mines. He has he has a fiefdom that that is 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 basically that his power is unchecked except for 
there's there's still a little bit of a, an artisanal union in the steel mills. And by the 18, 1890s, he's going to break them too. So a series of wage cuts triggers this strike in Homestead. Homestead is, it's a, it's a mill town just outside of Pittsburgh. It's sort of this huge, it's just a, a huge steel mill with some housing around it, right? So it, it is, it is Carnegie's, Carnegie's fiefdom. And this is, this is where the conflict's going to play itself out, right? So the union goes on strike. They want recognition. They want their wages protected. They want their status protected. Carnegie tells his general manager, Henry Frick, do what you have to do. And then he leaves to go to Scotland to do some golfing. And, and Frick says, okay, what do we do? We're going to build a protective wall. We're going to fortify the, the, the mill. We're going to hunker down. Violence will come and we'll, we'll get through it. We're going to hire replacement labor to get the mills up and running. And to protect all of this, we're going to bring in barge loads of Pinkertons. We're going to go to New York. We're going to go to Chicago. We're going to tell the Pinkertons. By this point, it's 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 William and Robert, the sons who are running it. We're going to ask them, send us as many men as you can, because there, there's going to be a battle here. And the Pinkertons do it, right? They, they send their armed guards to Homestead to, to protect the plant. The strikers know this is happening. They know this playbook. They've seen it over the past 20 years. There's no way they're letting the Pinkertons anywhere near that mill. And so instead, what happens is armed strikers meet the barges at the riverfront. You're not getting off this barge. You're not stepping foot into town, much less getting anywhere near that mill. And the Pinkertons demand that they that they disperse. Everyone's armed. Everyone's angry. Everyone's tense. And... As will happen, shots get fired. And it, and it basically becomes this raging gun battle between armed strikers on the shoreline and, and Pinkertons pinned down in their barges. The barges can't go anywhere. They're stuck inside. Strikers will set other barges on fire and float them at it, trying to burn them out. It's, just, it's this really massive battle on a scale that no one had seen before. And ultimately, the Pinkertons have to surrender. They are marched through town jeered at and, and kicked at and beaten as they're moved through town. And they're they're packed onto a, a train and shipped out of town. Ultimately, the army arrives and, and the Pennsylvania National Guard arrives to reestablish some semblance of order. The Carnegie Mill continues. The replacement workers arrive. The strike is broken. So that if, if, if the effort was to recognize that steel workers union, that doesn't happen. But perhaps most importantly for our story is that if Pinkerton or the Pinkertons had long had this balance between, yeah, the working classes hate us because of what we do, but the upper classes love us because of what we do, right? Because we've maintained this semblance of being gentlemen, detectives who bring law and order, right? And they've clung to that reputation. They've clung to, to, to that ideal. And they've convinced politicians that they're not a danger, that if anything, they bring order. Homestead blasts that to pieces. Right? Everyone's shocked. Everyone's uh, confused. Congress launches investigations to basically ask, what in the hell are you doing? Why, why can Carnegie hire his own armies? How are these, where do these guys come from? Are they just scraped off the streets? Are, they, are these just riffraff off the street that we've armed? Are they moving across state lines armed? Under what authority, right? Are, they're not, have they been sworn in as sheriff's deputies? And if so, why? How? Right? There are so many questions asked. And the, the Battle of Homestead not only is this horrific example of violence between capital and labor in the late 19th century, 
but it's also the moment in which the Pinkerton agency can no longer maintain this delicate balance of their reputation as, as lawmen and the realities of what their job as, as protectives and strike breakers do, right? What they do with that. And so this is the moment in which public sentiment and political sentiment turns against them. They are no longer acceptable as a big, powerful private agency. Yeah, it's just unbelievable stuff there. So you have these these multiple barges and a massive shootout. And I think I recall, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the the strikers, the laborers themselves, they were able to secure some kind of like cannon yeah. from the yeah. town, like a ceremonial cannon or something. So right. they were bombarding private security guards with artillery. Yes. Who are trapped on barges. And this happened in the United States of America. I just I just yeah. could not believe it. Just outside honestly. of Pittsburgh. Yeah. So like a lot of towns. In, in after the Civil War, right, sort of the, the, the local courthouse will have old Civil War cannon as sort of a commemoration of the war. It doesn't take much to make those operational again. So, yeah, they, they, they go grab this old cannon, roll it down to the, uh, uh, to the shore and try and pack it full of whatever metal they can find to try and, and sort of create shrapnel to, to bombard. They're not terribly successful at it. They don't really know what they're doing. And packing a really old cannon full of just random stuff you find is not a, not a great idea. Right. But, it's, but it right. shows the level at which sort of the bitterness and the violence and the animosity that, that had defined not just capital and labor, but in particular, how much workers despised the Pinkertons, how much Pinkerton as a term, just became a, a category of hatred, right? To call someone a Pinkerton or a pink or, or right? This is deeply, deeply meaningful. They were deeply despised. Right, right. Yeah, that's, that's man, no words. I was just, I was just poleaxed, honestly, when I read that, yeah. that whole section about the Battle of Homestead. I couldn't believe I hadn't heard more about it in the past. Right. So after that, I mean, of course, there's been conflicts between labor and capital for, you know, centuries at this point, you know, yeah. and that continued on for many years, but did things become better for, for strikers as a whole? I mean, were, were the Pinkertons replaced by another organization that acted in a similar fashion or, yeah. or what exactly? That's a great question. So part of that, part of the contradiction is that when people said Pinkerton in the 1890s, they met both the actual agency, right? Sort of the capital P Pinkertons, but also this, this process by which businesses hired their own armed guards who could do virtually anything they wanted to, right? They, they, those, they kind of meant both when they talked about who Pinkertons were. When Congress launches this investigation, they're really only concerned with the first one about who the Pinkertons are, right? How does this agency come to be? Why do they have so much power? Why do they have so much authority? And so the, the legislation that comes out of the Homestead Investigations it's called the Anti-Pinkerton Act, right? So that basically says the federal government cannot hire the Pinkertons anymore. And we suggest no one else hire them either because this is a dangerous, dangerous business. But they kind of only mean that specific company, right? The Pinkertons. <laughs> and so what happens is one of two things. And very quickly is that if you're a big company like Pullman, for instance, right? George Pullman has a... a, a, a Railroad company just outside of Chicago. He makes sleeping cars, right? Sort of these sort of rolling hotels. And he had a company town. He owns everything, right? There's, there's, there's deep animosity between himself and his workers. That explodes into a strike in 1894. This is, this is two years after Homestead. And it turns violent too. And basically, sort of Pullman goes to the federal government and says, 
you won't let me hire Pinkertons anymore. So what are you going to do? And and the federal government says, well, because they're stopping the, the rail cars from moving and rail cars carry mail, I guess it is a federal concern. We'll send in the army. We'll send in the army to reestablish order, right, to, to break this strike. So if you're a worker in, in Pullman, the lesson from Homestead was, yes, they cracked down on the Pinkertons, but it got worse because now they send in the army. And the army actually comes in with more authority. So that's one option, right? The army now does it. The other option, and this happens especially in Appalachia, is that other companies that just don't carry that Pinkerton name can come in and do the same thing. So in the in the coal fields of Appalachia, up and down from eastern Kentucky and, and West Virginia, there's a different company called the Baldwin Felts who do the exact same thing as the Pinkertons do. They just don't hide anything, right? They're not trying to be moral or understanding. They don't try to pretend they're anything else other than armed guards. And they get away with it, right? So if you're if you're a coal miner in West Virginia, there might not be Pinkertons there, but there are Baldwin Felts, and that's just as bad. So no, nothing really changes. Nothing really gets better. Not until the 1930s with the New Deal, with the Wagner Act, with, with federal recognition of, of the rights to unionize. And Pinkertons get hauled back again before before congressional investigations in the in the 1930s. It's not really until the New Deal that that, that relationship's going to change. Hmm. So that that's a pretty far leap forward in time. That's several decades right there. Yeah. What were the Pinkertons doing in that interim after the strike breaking up through the 1930s? Yeah, it's a great question. They're desperate for work, right? Because they've, they've been cut off from from their their real profitability. They go back. They, they go back to their mythology. They'll they'll start stressing Western work. They'll start talking about sort of tracking down Butch Cassidy and Sundance, right? Because there are still outlaws in the West. They could still track them down. Yeah, they don't know. And so they're they're losing out on on strike work. They don't really want to do it anymore. It's not worth the 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 cost to their PR. They're losing a lot of work to, to William Burns and his International Detective Agency. So what they'll do is they'll try to rebuild their reputation, try to recom- become respectable. And one of the ways they do that is by doing more detection about crime. They will they'll get hired by banks to catch embezzlers, not bank robbers, but embezzlers. They'll be hired by insurance companies, and they they start providing private security, not armed security, but private security for racetracks, right? Horse racing, golf clubs, and other sort of private clubs. This will become their sort of their new reputation. They just become really sort of security guards in, in the background that you that you don't think about much. Hmm. That's a far cry from their their heyday there in of Allen's day, I guess, right? It really is, yeah. And it amazed me because I was I was working on this book and I was you know talking to various people and and when I would talk about the Pinkertons, sometimes you know people would say like oh the the, the you know it's Jesse James in the West and sometimes it's you know the the strike breaking in Homestead. And then I was talking to my my uncle who's a who's a golfer, right, and sort of you know follows golf closely, and he says, well, you know. They're known for providing security at the Masters, right? For throughout the 20th century, right? So this is one of the key ethos of, of the the Masters golf tournament is that there are Pinkerton guards, right? Sort of the, the sort of that. so they have a really strange, complex reputation, and it is a far cry from their sort of gunslinging days in the West to their sort of you know armed guard thugs at Homestead to suddenly becoming private security at at horse racing. Amazing. So that they are still around right yeah. now. I mean, is it just a, a legitimate, you know, uniformed security company? Are they doing, have they been involved in any kind of, I don't know, scandal or anything like that that you're aware of at all? Overseas contracting, you know, anything like that at all? Good question. Yeah. They're not, they're not, you know, Blackwater, 
or to kind of these other other agencies who've kind of taken their place. So that all that sort of private contracting that gets done, you know, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, they've not been involved in that. A similar storyline, how Blackwater comes to be, but it's not the Pinkertons. They'll go through various different stages. In the 1940s, they're able to sort of get back in the good graces of Americans by providing security at plants, right? During during World War II, they basically say, you know, sabotage sabotage might be real. So we're going to protect the plants, uh, not from the workers, but from from Nazi saboteurs, right? So they they're kind of they become part of the war effort. In the 40s, that helps. Their their reputation is revived by, uh, of all people, Ian Fleming, who writes the James Bond novels. Oh yeah, uh, because uh, one of one of Bond, Bond's American equivalent is Felix Leiter, who in some novels is a CIA agent, but then becomes a Pinkerton later. Right. So oh really? Huh. Their 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 reputation is sort of slowly salvaged. But it's not, there's not, not a ton of, of work to be done. When the FBI exists, when the CIA exists, when state police exist, there's not much to do. And so the, the short answer to that is they get bought out. There is a Securitas, which is sort of this big Swedish conglomerate that buys up a bunch of these firms. They buy up what's left of the, the William Burns International Agency. They buy up what's left of the Pinkertons. And they largely buy the Pinkertons for the name, and they do keep the name. And so uh, Pinkertons is still a, a subsidiary of, of Securitas. And what they mostly do is they provide what can best be called sort of risk management, right? So corporate risk management. So if you have company executives who travel, who go abroad, who might go into sort of, you know, places where their safety might not be insured, Pinkertons will will help you, right? They'll they'll provide some security. They'll provide some logistics. They'll provide some intelligence. They're still doing corporate risk management. Hmm. Yeah, well, I'm not sure how much you would know about this. Do you think that in some ways is that a euphemism for some some risky activities outside of the United States, or is that just like <laughs> you know advising somebody they should or should not go to a certain place or or something like that? Yeah, as as a as a as a functioning business, right, that exists now, who pay close attention to what people say about them, I, I'm I'm reluctant to to venture a guess as to what what Pinkertons <laughs> okay. actually do right sure. now. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. But you know, yeah, they risk management does imply right. So sort of th- there's some risk involved. There was a very good piece written in the the New York Times Magazine just a couple years ago. It was a uh, uh, Noel Shannon wrote a piece for the, for the New York Times about the Pinkertons because their business is growing in corporate risk management because climate change is making much of, of the world sort of less stable as, as corporate executives move through various different nations, right? So they, they feel less secure and that, that global instability is actually creating, Shannon pointed out, sort of a, a new business possibility, a new need that the Pinkertons, once again, they're there to fill it. Hmm. Yeah. Well, they've always been very good, very opportunistic, I guess you could say. So yeah. um, makes sense that they would be the first to jump on that. And the, the brand still exists. The brand still carries weight. The brand still carries meaning. The name, the logo, right? So that all seeing eye, the eye that never blinks and never sleeps still carries the same meaning it did in the 1850s. Yeah. Alan, Alan Pinkerton. I mean, it, it's funny saying this since the logo is an eye, but I mean, what a visionary that yeah. guy yeah. was honestly like. I wonder if he could have imagined that in, you know, the year 2022, people would be still talking about him. Not only just you and I, because we're interested, but people the world over know who the Pinkertons are. 
to have this 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 level of fame and notoriety. I think one of the things that the the agency figured out in the 20th century is that it's okay to be a little notorious because people are talking about you one way or the other. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, I think to to have, have achieved that level of financial success, to achieve that level of fame, to create a business that that had such a broad reach that was beloved and feared that shows up in Sherlock Holmes novels that shows up in Dashiell Hammett's novels that shows up in James Bond novels that shows up in 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 film repeatedly it is an agency we still talk about not only its historical significance but we still talk about it cuz it still exists now um mm-hmm. i think on the one hand, because I, I feel like I know him well, because I, I, I read everything about him and everything he wrote. I feel like on the one hand, Alan Pinkerton uh, would be uh, amazed and surprised by that success. And on the other hand, I think he would say that, yeah, I, I knew that was coming. I knew exactly <laughs> what was going. Yeah, that was my intent all that along. That was my intent all along. <laughs> Fascinating stuff. So one, one final question for you, Paul. I'm yeah. not sure if you're familiar with it at all, but I have a lot of my, my listeners are in the, you know, like 30 and under age category. And I would suspect that a lot of them are probably familiar with the Pinkertons because they were some of the main antagonists from this recent, you know, very popular video game, Red Dead Redemption 2. Right. And I I personally, I've not played that one, but I've heard a lot about it. It's kind of hard to miss the past few years. So have you played it? Do you have any opinion whatsoever on how the Pinkertons are portrayed in that game for the people that might be wondering that themselves? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Pinkertons, as sort of just a, a a blanket Western villain, have shown up in movies and television repeatedly, right? Over the past sixty years, any story about Jesse James, any story about the West, any you know, any story about Butch Cassidy or Sundance, you know, the the HBO series on Deadwood, right? Sort of the Pinkertons are always there, right? And they're almost always the villain. It's a pretty stock depiction. And so apparently, I don't I don't play it. I wasn't familiar with it. it. It never showed up on my radar screen until until people started tracking me down to ask me about it about about Red Dead Redemption Two, which is apparently the sequel to Red Dead Redemption. It's a it's a it's one of these games I'm led to believe right where you you delve into this world right you 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 this immensely dense world where you wander around right you can you can go on all kinds of missions and and you, you do all kinds of intricate stuff right sort of this this. There's a storyline around it, but right, sort of this, it's this video game world, right? This virtual world. And the storyline apparently is centered around, right? You're a bandit, you're an outlaw, as and you're part of this outlaw band, and you're on the run. How do you how do you get away? Where do you go? Where do you camp? What horses do you take? Right? Sort of the, this is the storyline that unfolds. And apparently the great villain in the story is that you're being chased by Pinkertons, right? They're 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 the big bad, they're the villain in this in this video game. And it was tremendously successful, tremendously popular, as as video games will do. It created this online community of people who talked about the game. And it created this language of villainy around Pinkertons, right? Of, of people talking about how much they hated the Pinkertons, how many Pinkertons they've killed, so <laughs> the shootouts they've gotten into the Pinkertons, right? So this, this, this language of Pinkerton villainy that caught the attention of the Pinkertons, right? So the company noticed that this oh, was wow. happening, that their name kept popping up in these social media posts and Twitter posts and elsewhere that people were talking about how much they hated Pinkertons and how much they loved killing Pinkertons. And that alarmed them, that concerned them. And apparently th- their response to this 
was to sue the video game for breach of property rights, right? Sort of intellectual property, right? That this is mm. this is our brand, this is our name, right? You can't you can't use our our name and logo this way and our likeness this way, right? It's unfair to us, it's unfair to our brand, and we'd prefer it if you stop. And that's where I came in, right? So, so people reached out to me to say how does this happen? Where, where does this come from? And so that's that's my familiarity with the video game. I don't think, and I don't know because I haven't followed it closely recently, I, I don't think anything's become of that lawsuit. I think it's a really hard sell for the Pinkerton agency to have this long of a history, to ha- have this much presence in novels and film and television and right. So there's this larger public discourse about the Pinkertons that they don't control even back to the 1850s, right? Alan never really controlled the the reputation as much as he wanted to. And so they've tried to kind of reclaim some control over that narrative. And I don't think that's been tremendously successful. But I think what it has done to go back to sort of their, the, you know, any notoriety is also still people talking about you, is that the game, the success of the game their response to the game, their lawsuit and people's response to the lawsuit, whether the lawsuit's successful or not, what it has reminded people of, and you see this over and over, right? If you sort of look at any of the the social media posts about it, is that the most common response is, I had no idea this company still existed. How is this, how is this still exist? And and it, it has really put not just the historical Pinkertons, but the modern Pinkertons, right? This company that still exists, that still provides corporate risk management, right? That still provides private security. It's put them back in the spotlight in ways that I, I think has to has to please them. Whether they like the depiction that's actually, the, the depictions of them in the video game or not, I'm pretty sure they don't, but they get people talking about the Pinkertons. And that has almost always been the point. Wow. And here we are doing their work for and them. Here we are right doing now. it for them. Exactly right. Yes. <laughs> wow. Keeping them alive. Fascinating. Well, Paul, thank you. This has been really, really fascinating. I'm, I'm so glad that I had the chance to read your book and then talk to you about it. Are, are you working on another book right now? Do you have anything else, a big plan besides your, your current you know, career as a teacher? Um, you know, the, the last couple of years of, of COVID and lockdown have complicated all of this, but there are always new projects. I have several new projects in, in the works. We'll see what becomes of them. But I, I really am fascinated by this kind of those gray areas between sort of truth and and folklore and mythology and self-invention, right? Kind of conspiracies and weirdness. And so there there are lots of these tales that I'm fascinated by. There's a serial killing family in Kansas in the 1870s called the Benders. I'm deeply fascinated by them. I want to, oh, wow. I want to know more about them. There's a sort of various conspiracies in and around Chicago in the 1860s about the 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 Confederate prison and potential prison breaks. There are great conspiracies that, that bandy around those. I just, I think these are moments, whether true or not, it exposes, right? The way people talk about these, these moments of fear and anxiety really demonstrate the larger way in which they see the world changing around them. And so the, these things fascinate me. So what will become of these? I don't know. These are, these are currently my fascinations. Well, very cool. Well, you've certainly got my attention with just those little bits that you've thrown off there. So I appreciate it. I'll definitely look forward to anything that you publish in the future. Are, are you, do you have any like public facing social media or anything? If people want to connect after they hear you here on the podcast? I don't, sadly. I'm I'm so, I'm so very out of step, which is probably why I know nothing about video games either. <laughs> but yeah, if anyone wants to sort of track me down, you know, I'm at Xavier in, in, in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can, you can certainly track down the, the email there. I'm always happy to have people contact me. I'd 
clearly, I love talking about the Pinkertons. I love talking about history. I, I love I love retelling these stories and thinking about sort of how the stories get told. So through email or, or, or through Xavier, people are more than welcome to reach out to me. Okay. All right. Wonderful, Paul. This has been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. And I definitely want to stay in touch in the future. So thank you so much for coming on. It's been my pleasure. And thank you so much for, for, for finding the book and for reading it because I've, I've absolutely enjoyed this. All right. Great. Take care, Paul. You too. Thanks. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my pages on Instagram at Spycraft 101 and at cold.war.stamps. You can also find more great articles on my website, spycraft101.com. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there's lots more to come. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The stories and statements expressed herein are experiences and opinions. They may not reflect the views of the host or the production studio. It's okay if you disagree with our content. No piece of media is right for everyone. If you love Spycraft 101, please check us out online, on Instagram, on YouTube, and especially on Patreon. Thank you for listening.